this is uh, from Ruth, the very end of Ruth. Everyone, this is Suzanne Williams. She's going to read for us this morning. Ruth, uh, chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Jesus. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, pray for myself. Uh, I pray that uh, you teach us through this very powerful story of Ruth's, Ruth and Naomi and, and Boaz, uh, Lord, that you would quicken our hearts um, that this is not just history, this is our history, um, that we'd find ourselves in this story um, and that we leave here today um, literally joy bombs, explode, explosions of joy uh, for the great rescue uh, that you've done for us. Um, so make it so. Uh, use whatever words you want to use through me right now uh, to teach that truth uh, deep into the places of our hearts that need it. And we ask this and we pray in your name. Amen. All right. So we are in, in this Advent series which is, a, as I said in the um, call to worship, it's a season where we're waiting, right? We're, we're looking back at Christ's coming, but we're also awaiting his promised return. And so how you wait and where you wait matters. Uh, and we're looking at that uh, idea of Advent, that, the, that Jesus is coming back uh, through the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, which a genealogy... Um, we don't, you know, maybe you're into Ancestry.com and all of that, but, you know, I don't think a whole lot about my genealogy quite the way they used to, but a genealogy is basically his, is Jesus' resume. It's his pedigree. And, and when you read through Jesus' genealogy, what you find is, is he's saying by having these women included, and in particular <laughs> these women and their stories included, he's saying that I'm not going to hide and I'm not going to shrink from the broken or the controversial or the messy parts of family, right? We have a tendency to do that, kind of like, I don't want to talk about the crazy uncle, right? Well, Jesus is like, let's get it all on paper. I'm bringing this all out, all the controversial, messy parts of our family, because that's my family. That, that's our family. We are a broken family. Humanity is a broken family and these stories of these women, whether you know it or not, these are our stories. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Mary, those are the four that we're going to be looking at. We're looking at Ruth today. In many ways, small and maybe for some of you big ways, they embody our stories. And they're stories of brokenness. They're stories of fear. They're stories of loss. They're stories of of hopelessness and barely having a thread of hope in the dark. They're dark stories, waiting on something, stories of waiting on something or someone to break into the story and save the day. 
Disney didn't create the formula, right? This is, this is the gospel story. And we've been looking in these rich and complicated stories to get a glimpse of the significance of the coming of Jesus as Messiah, who was the Savior of his people, who they were waiting for, this, the kind of Savior they're waiting for, and who we await his return. So we're in Ruth today. And I, just a little caveat, if any of you are thinking about, hey, I, I'd love to have something to read to kind of prepare my heart over the next few weeks for Christmas, I would, after re-studying this, because we preached through Ruth a couple of years ago, in rereading through Ruth, it's only four chapters, I, I could, feel like I can say this with a ton of integrity, I feel like the entire message of the gospel and the entire Bible is in these four chapters. That, that from Genesis to Revelation is kind of compressed into these women's and Boaz's story. And it, it shows us, without really even overtly saying it, maybe if you have a non-believer in your life that you're trying to actually show this is who God is, this is a great book to take them to to say, this is who God is without even really having to talk about Jesus. Because he's hidden in this story. Hopefully by the end of the sermon, you'll see, man, this is all about Jesus. And this is all about what he's done and what he's accomplished for us and he's used other people to accomplish, okay? So three things. We couldn't read the whole book. Maybe we should have just read the whole book this morning, right? We could have done that. I just sit down and say, thus saith the Lord. Uh, three things that we'll talk about this morning that come in this text that we read, but it's in the whole story. Uh, bitter to blessed. So you can write that down. We're going to talk about this as a story of going from being very bitter to being very blessed. Secondly, we're going to talk about what is this, this guardian redeemer? It says there, praise to the Lord who's not left you without a guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. Maybe you're familiar with that translation. A guardian redeemer and covenant love. So bitter to blessed, a guardian redeemer and covenant love. And then lastly, uh, where's our joy? Like I can see where uh, the bitter to blessed happens here in, in Naomi's joy, but what about our joy? What about your joy this season, okay? Bitter to blessed. Uh, these characters, this is at the very end of Ruth, what we just read. Uh, but you can see just from this text right here, there are three main characters in the book of Ruth. Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi. And I know the book's named Ruth, but if you go back to the very beginning of the book, what you really are first introduced to is Ruth's mother-in-law, which is Naomi. And in many ways, I think you could argue this is as much Naomi's story as it is Ruth's story. Naomi is married to a guy named Elimelech. And the story begins, the book begins, Israel is in a place of famine. So everybody is struggling to eat. And Elimelech and Naomi, they actually flee. They leave Israel in a state of famine, and they go to Moab. And in Moab, it doesn't give a, a ton of details here, but in some ways, what you see Naomi and Elimelech doing is, is they're kind of saying, we're, we're bailing on Israel. God, God's not faithful. We're going to go over to Moab and, and get us something to eat, okay? And they get to Moab, and it says very clearly in chapter 1 that eventually her husband, Elimelech, dies, and then eventually, uh, her two sons, Malon and Kilion, I believe their names are, end up dying as well. And they had been married uh, to Ruth and uh, Orpah. 
which I heard this morning that actually Oprah's mom misnamed her, like spelled it wrong. That's how she ended up being called Oprah. So not Oprah, Orpah. Everybody's like, seriously? <laughs> I don't know. Go look it up on the internet. Yes. So here, here's Naomi. She has no husband. She has no sons. She's in a foreign land in Moab. She has two daughter-in-laws who are both not Israelites. They're foreigners. And, and basically, um, she's widowed. She's childless. She's heirless. She has no heir to her family name. And she starts this death march back to Bethlehem. I mean, she's literally a dead woman walking in that day's society. And she names herself, she literally names herself um, bitter. Let me read this to you. It says, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. She names herself bitter. I mean, I love this. I love that the Scripture doesn't back away from these brutal details. That, that she's so unhappy with what the Lord has done that she renames herself bitter. And in that story, she tells Ruth and Orpah, she says, hey, y'all, y'all are from Moab. Y'all should stay in Moab. Where I'm headed, it's not going to be good. And so stay here, stay with your people. And Orpah takes her up on it and leaves. And Ruth does something really profound. Ruth adopts Naomi's faith, and she adopts Naomi's Hebrew identity. And she says to her, basically, I'm with you to the end. Um, she adopts her faith and she adopts her identity even when Naomi appears to have none of that herself. Like, way make her light in the darkness. You're always working. Naomi's at a place where she's like, I don't know if God's doing anything on my behalf right now. Naomi appears to have no faith no identity herself, even the opposite. God, this is my identity. My identity is bitter. And God, this is who you are. She is utterly desperate. And so she and Ruth, they go back to Bethlehem. Can you imagine that walk? And they get there, and Naomi's in this headspace, right? And Ruth, we see in chapter 2, I'm just going to, we're giving you act one, act two, act three to get us to four here. Ruth, basically by, by Naomi's prodding, because she didn't even know about this, Ruth has to call upon a customary grace practice from the, from the, the Torah law, which is to go glean in the fields just to eat. It's basically, it's harvest time, it's the barley harvest time, and everybody's out there working, and part of the Old Testament law was basically, hey, don't pick up every little last bit that you can for yourself because there's a ton of poor people who need to eat. And so leave some stuff in the field so these poor foreigners who have nothing can come into your field and get a little bit so that they can survive. And Naomi understands this practice, and so she says, Ruth, hey, here's what you need to do. Go out into this field. Here's how you got to present yourself. Go out and do this, 
And hopefully there's going to be some grain so we can survive tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And so this Moabite widow, Ruth, who's a total outsider to the Hebrew community, goes and gleans. And it says in chapter 2, verse 3, she just happens to go. Love that, how Scripture kind of paints that picture for us, because what it's saying there is it's saying, hey, God is actually sovereignly working in the middle of all of this darkness in a way that you're going to think it's just happenstance, but it's not. He's doing something here. She just happens to go to Boaz's field, who just happens to be from Elimelech's clan. And he happens to be a man of noble character, which was rare at the time because it says at the very beginning, verse 1 of Ruth, it's the time of the judges. And what do you know about the time of the judges? Judges was a time where Israel had no king and everybody did as they saw fit. Judges was a time of religious and relativistic pluralism. Gosh, that was a chunky, gross word. Everybody, Everybody do what you feel like doing. That's what Judges was, right? So it's hard to find a noble man in a time where everybody's just free to kind of do whatever they think's best for themselves. And yet, that's who Boaz is. And he's in the Limelech's clan, and he shows her favor, and he says this to her. He says, daughter, only glean in my field. I will take care of you. I know you're a foreigner. I know you're in an incredibly vulnerable place, and you need help. Don't ever leave my field. You don't need to go anywhere else. Come to me, and I'll take care of you. God's promises to Ruth and God's promises to Naomi were deep at work and absolutely unseeable at the time. But he was moving. And how he was moving, how God's grace and his promises and his favor were deep at work even though unseeable to these two women, how was through this man Boaz? Really, in many ways, for Naomi through Ruth, and for Ruth and Naomi through Boaz. Two relatives that redemption is going to be brought through. I just want to stop us for a second, and and I want to dog ear a page in your soul right now. That's what I'm doing. So write it down. <laughs> write it down on the tablet of your heart. Because if, if you're going to live in this world, in the middle of the darkness of this world, in the middle of the tornadoes of your life, and they can and will and do come, there, there's a powerful biblical, two powerful biblical principles that we, we have to grab a hold of the gospel here in the Old Testament. And they're marks of faith, and you have to cling to them in difficult times, and it's this. The first dog here is this, God is working redemption even when I cannot see it. He is. Naomi's struggling with that. Of course she is. That's why she needs Ruth's faith. I'm going to borrow from your faith because I have barely have a thread of it at this point. But it's like when David says in Psalm 139, I think, the darkness is not dark to you. God is working redemption, even when I cannot see it. Dog ear it. Secondly, dog ear this. My redemption, the redemptive work that God is doing, he's doing at the choice and the cost of another person. 
not by my own hand, not by my own effort. I can't redeem myself. It's such a profound picture of utter depravity. Ruth and Naomi, it's, it's so busted, there's no bootstrap in this. I need somebody else. So God is working redemption even when I can't see it. And my redemption, it's going to be at the choice and the cost of another. Naomi's redemption would come through Ruth's faithfulness to her. Ruth's redemption would come, and Naomi's as well, through Boaz's. You know, Naomi later on in the book, she sends Ruth to Boaz hoping to secure basically him as a husband for her to redeem her so she wouldn't be a widow. It's basically like saying, hey, the ship sailed on me, but there's still time for you. You're young, you know? So she sends him to Boaz, and what ends up happening is, is that it turns into a chance for Boaz to not only bless Ruth, but to bless Naomi as well. Boaz ends up marrying Ruth, but they end up providing an heir for Naomi, a child. Naomi's redemption comes through Ruth's faithfulness. Ruth through Boaz's willingness. Let me tell you about Boaz real quick. It says he's a noble man. Do you know who Boaz's mom was? Rahab the prostitute. Who Jonathan talked about last week. The woman who ran the brothel in the wall of Jericho. Who was shown undeserving grace by Joshua and the spies, Right? You think this dude doesn't know the story of his mom? I, I'm alive because when Jericho got squashed under the judgment of God, God spared my family. And Boaz, man, God has like teed the ball up for Boaz. I am, I'm going to be a grace monster now, right? Just come on. I wouldn't even have a life if God hadn't saved me. So Boaz gets this, Right? I've been redeemed by the cost of another. And so my life now reflects that. Everyone in the story, Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, their stories are stories of bitterness, hopelessness, to eventually bless through the mercy and the grace and the cost of another. But it's not just anyone. Second point, it comes through a kinsman redeemer and through covenant love. A kinsman redeemer and covenant love. Now, I'm going to have to think about how to say this quickly. This, this is going to be like a, a yeah, duh, Dave. All the people in the story were related, right? They were flesh and blood. Ruth, the daughter-in-law, shows this at first when she has been given her marching orders by bitter Naomi. She says, go back to Moab, there's no future with me, right? She's basically saying, you're free of the family tie. You don't have to do this. And it's true, she didn't. And so both Ruth and Boaz, they take the opportunity to play the role that they play willingly. They don't have to do it because they're family. They choose to be in the family and stay in the family. They choose to act in this way. Ruth says to Naomi, your people will be my people and your God will be my God and the only thing that's going to separate you and me are death. She's saying, I'm committed to you. I'm not just committed to me. 
In this moment where I could be just committed to my best, I'm not just committed to my best. I'm committed to you. It, it, the word there is, is hesed, which is covenant love. I am literally, you could, you could put it like this, that, that she's saying, Naomi, when I married your son, I married you. <laughs> I'm, I'm covenanting with you and with your God. I'm bound to you. It's covenant love. And it reflects, and it should remind us, it reflected and reminded me of what the Lord says about us. The Lord says what? Remember when we studied Exodus? You will be my people, and I will be your God. I'm, I'm wedding myself to you. I don't have to do this. I'm choosing to do this. And guess what? When he says, Ruth says, only death will separate us. Jesus says to us this, my death won't separate us. It's the only way that we could actually be united. I'm willing to die so that I don't have to lose you. Ruth's covenant love eventually leads her to that place of taking risks because that's what love does, right? Ruth in a midnight rendezvous with Boaz effectively this is, it's a crazy story, y'all. You gotta go read it. All of it. She asked Bowie, Boaz to Bowie. <laughs> Maybe she called him that. I mean, who knows? Sounds kind of sweet. Bowie. That was after the wedding, right? She basically says, rise to your integrity and opportunity, Boaz. I'm taking this massive risk. I'm gonna ask you to marry me. And she says to him, I, I want you to literally, I want you to cover me with your garment. In the middle of the night, he said, you know, Boaz wakes up and says, who are you? She says, I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are the guardian redeemer of our family. That's powerful. It's, it's in some ways what we just did with Sam. We spread your wing over her. You're our guardian redeemer. Do what you promised to do takes a huge risk calling Boaz to rise to his integrity and cover over her. She's basically saying, bring us under your complete covering and protection. Cover me in the shadow of your wings. David later, you know, because David's in this line. How many times have you heard in the Psalms that, that expression, hide me in the shadow of your wing, right? I read it in the call to worship. Hide me, I'll sing in the shadow of your wing. Where do you think David learned to write that? It's a story of his great-grandparents. David's, he's penning the words of his great-grandmother, Ruth. I know you did this for Ruth. Do this for me. And what does Boaz do? He chooses. He agrees. He chooses to fulfill the role of kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer was a cultural practice of the day that if a relative died, Elimelech, and left a wife and a land and family, the closest relative to Elimelech would provide, he could choose to, he didn't have to, for them through marriage and purchase of the land, ensuring that that person would not go destitute, but they would have a future heir to the family and a continuation of their name. It was a noble, sacrificial thing. Because it was basically saying, I'm going to put a lot of cost in on this so that your name can actually continue. 
And Boaz says, I will fulfill that. But he couldn't do it if he wasn't family. He, he has to be a family member to do so. And he also has to have the resources to do it. And you see at the end of Ruth, we didn't read this part, at the end of Ruth 4, Boaz says, okay, I'll do this for you, Ruth. And, and the language in there, I mean, it's beautifully poetic and it's, a, it's a massively affectionate towards her. But he says, there's a problem. There's one person in line ahead of me. There's somebody who's actually closer to me than, 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 uh, than I, I am to you in the line of Elimelech. And so I got to get all the elders together in this big public setting. And I got to give this guy the opportunity um, to, to fulfill what I'm ready to fulfill. There's someone in line ahead of me. And they, they go through the whole scene, and basically because of this man's concern of bankrupting his own estate, he basically says, I want her land, but I don't want her. Yeah, I'll buy the land. Oh, she comes with it? Mm, no thanks. And when he turns it down, he turns down saying effectively, the cost is too great to me. I'm not willing to make that sacrifice for you, Ruth. Boaz steps in, he says, I embrace the risk, I embrace the cost, I want her and I want everything that comes with her, all the mess. But not just anyone could do that. It had to be a family member. He had to be related to redeem her and that's the same for you and for me. And we're gonna make a jump here, so get on your trampoline shoes, right? your strength shoes. At Christmas, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating that God sent his son in flesh, incarnate. He took on humanity. He, he became a part of his created family. And so through his relation to us, he could provide salvation for us. That's what scripture tells us. He had to become like us to be our kinsman redeemer. He had to become family. Listen to this in Hebrews. It says, both the one who makes people holy, this is Hebrews 2, and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Since children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those whose lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I'm not a slave to the fear of death anymore because I'm not going to die. I'm set free from that. This life is not all there is. Yes, it is dark, but the darkness is not dark to him. He is working a future that is secure and it's true and it's real. And he paid for it by his blood. For this reason, Hebrews says, he, Jesus, had to be made like them. He had to become family, fully human in every way in order that we, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He had to be made like them, fully human in every way, that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest, a kinsman, guardian, redeemer, who can affect covenant love on his kids. That's good news, right? This is the place where everybody goes, hallelujah. 
right? I know we're a little too buttoned down to do that. But he's saying, I, I, I became like you. I, I took on flesh because I can't redeem you at a distance. That's not what love does, is it? Love draws near. And that's what he did. He lived a life of obedience that we could never live. He died the death that our sins required. Philippians 2 said he emptied himself. He is Boaz to the max. Be a sweet t-shirt. <laughs> Boaz to the max. That we could share in his glory. So it's a story of bitter to blessed, and that's our story. It's a story of kinsman, redeemer, and covenant love. That's our story. I just need you to go with me here for a second, because this last point really is what the Lord was working in me, and I'm, I'm praying that it will help you, and it's this. If that's true for me, where's my joy? Because at the end of this story, everybody's high-fiving, yeah, Naomi's got a son, Ruth's got a husband, you know, this is the Disney ending. And we're told in Scripture, we have that ending. Whether we can see it or not, that's our future. The end of the story, there's a baby for Naomi. Ruth is secure. Her name is secure. It says there, praise be to the Lord. He hasn't left you without a guardian and redeemer. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Naomi has gone from bitter to having a renewer and a sustainer. It's the same for us. So where's our joy? And maybe I'm asking you, if you don't have joy, why not? Because the author ends saying, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse. He was the father of David. For a reader of the day, for a Jew in that day, that would have literally been a trampoline to Jesus, right? The beginning of Matthew, it says this, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it gives this full lineage. So it's basically effectively saying, hey, this story about Ruth and Naomi, this is about David, and it's eventually about Jesus, which means it's eventually about us. And Jesus says to us, behold, I am making all things new. I'm working in the darkness, and I'm with you in the darkness. I'm with you even to the end of the age. So if we're not marked by joy, if I'm not marked by joy, why not? What have I missed? Why is there so little joy? Like, I can see it. I'm letting you into my back closet right now. I can see why in Naomi's life, with all of the details and all the circumstances, widowed, childless, financial ruin, foreign country, I mean, it's hard for us to even get our heads around. I can see why no joy, but why me? Many of us have given ourselves new names like Naomi. Because of the difficult circumstances of our lives, we've said things like, I'm unloved, I'm unworthy, I have no future hope, I'm not enough, I'm a failure. I don't know. 
what are the names that you've said, this is who I am? Naomi said, bitter. What do you say? What have you penned into your heart and said, that's what I am? And Naomi did something too. She said, and that's who you are, God. What name do you live by? Because she was committed to living by the name bitter until God stepped into the story. There was a guy who came from France in the 19, or 1800s named Alexis de Tocqueville. He's a French philosopher and thinker. And he wrote a book um, called Democracy in America. And one of the key observations that he had about America in the 1800s was he could not believe that it was a land so melancholy, so full of melancholy, so full of sadness when there was so much abundance. It shocked him. In the 1800s. How can these people be so sad, so melancholy when they have so much? I'll tell you what name I live by. Day to day, what name I live by depends on what field I'm gleaning in. Write that down, dog ear it. Whatever name you're living by, and if that name isn't joy, if that name isn't child, if that name isn't son, if that name isn't heir, if it's bitter, if it's unloved, unworthy, then I'm gleaning in the wrong field. I'm picking up the scraps from someone's field that I believe is going to give me the hope and the life and the identity that Jesus has said, you've already got it. Sometimes I wonder if my abundance, my gifts, my strengths, my capacity, my money, my abilities, they actually distract and disguise me from my brokenness and my real need. And so I go away sad. I don't have joy. I go away sad like the rich young ruler who went away sad because he had great wealth and it kept him from experiencing his treasure in heaven. I'll tell you, when I'm living in a name that is not the name the Lord has given me, it's because I'm gleaning for meaning and security in the wrong field. I was haunted by Boaz's command to her, don't go to another field. It's literally like he's looking at her and saying, the men in those other fields, they will not be faithful to you like I will. They will not redeem you like I will. They are not like me. Stay in my field. And if you stay in my field, even though there will be moments of darkness, even though you will feel in limbo, even though you will feel like I don't have a clue how God is working, you, there will come a day you will understand that I was working all things for your good. In our small group this week, we talked about the fall. And it was, it was beautiful. It was such a testimony to the very thing we're talking about. Almost to a person in our small group, everyone was talking about increasing suffering in their life and difficulty. And they were simultaneously talking about how that difficulty had driven them to the Lord. And as a result, they were, they were experiencing the Lord in a new and rich way. 
that they couldn't have without the suffering. Because difficulty drives you to somebody's field. It does. It drives you to a field and you glean somewhere. And the Lord's saying, don't leave my field. Never leave my field. Because you're my son, you're my daughter, you're my bride. And I've made these stories like Ruth's stories public record. Why? Because I'm publicly declaring that truth about you. Stay in the field. Take my name upon you. And when you do, this is the last thing I'll say. And many of you, you know what it means to glean in this field. It's what happened with Boaz. You become a kinsman redeemer. And it's what happened with Ruth. You become a covenant lover. When you glean in Jesus' field, you actually, you can gather so much that you bring through your own story and through your own sin and through your own brokenness, which doesn't disqualify you at all. You bring that, what you've gleaned to the world around you that is broken. People come to your field now. They come into your backyard and say, man, what's going on here? Let me tell you what the Lord's done for me. I was bitter. I used to live by a different name, but I've, I've embraced the new name. This is who I am now. I've got a kinsman redeemer who has covenant love for me, and it's good news, and I eat from the joy of that good news every single day. And as a result, my bag's full. If you read through the story, every time Boaz and Ruth meet, Boaz is like, hey, here, let me give you a little bit more stuff. Let me fill your bag with grain. No, no, no. Hey, get the other bag. Let me put a little bit more in there. Because she's gleaning in the field of her covenant lover. So if there's no joy in your life, and man, the season can bring it up, right? Maybe the Lord's saying, hey, instead of going and gleaning in the field, of your broken family system? As you walk into your family system, would you never leave my field? Would you glean in my field and remember who you are? Because it'll make you joyful. All right? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you for this story. Thank you uh, that you don't shy away from the darkness and the darkness is not dark to you. Thank you that you're so redemptive, that you're working in ways that we can barely see at times, sometimes not at all like Naomi. Lord, I pray for those of us who are living by a name that is not our true name. Your scripture says that you have a name for each of us that none of us know. How intimate is that? But I've subbed that name so many days for a name that somebody else gave me or I gave myself that doesn't reflect anything that's true about me. Lord, would we put those names down and in the advent of your son coming for our sins and for our life, Lord, would we find great joy in hearing your name and your song over us. We love you. It's so very clear that you love us. Amen.